Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Dr Virginia Reid. Today on Wellbeing we're going to be discussing vaccinations and in particular the newly released human papillomavirus vaccination which we hope will be a leading force in the prevention of cervical cancer. And to discuss this fascinating topic with me I have Professor Ian Fraser, Australian of the Year. Do you mind me sort of asking you first and foremost in brief (laughs) what an immunologist does? Sure. Uh... Immunologists are interested in how the body defends itself against infection so that uh, we can work on how that works normally or we can work on how to use that to help us fight disease. Uh, I'm a clinical immunologist, so that means that my practice includes looking after patients with problems with their immune system. So is that how you became interested in, in vaccinations in general? Yes, I think when I was uh, in training, I realized that probably the most useful application of immunology was the development of vaccines for diseases that we didn't have vaccines for already. Yes, okay. Do you mind sort of filling us in on a bit of the history of vaccinations, when they came in and what their impact on public health was? Well, I guess the very first vaccine was the one that uh, Jenner came up with Mm. against smallpox back in the 1780s. Uh, That was really a leap in the dark because at that time we didn't even know that germs caused disease so that he just made the practical observation that milkmaids didn't seem to get smallpox if they'd been exposed to cows that had a disease that looked like smallpox. And uh, putting two two and two together and coming to about 25, he managed to decide that it would be a good idea to try challenging a few kids with the material from the cows that looked like the smallpox on humans. And uh, amazingly enough, it worked and actually protected the children against smallpox. Ethics committees weren't such a thing then. No, indeed not. (laughs) (laughs) The the whole thing sounded entirely implausible to the extent that people drew cartoons at the time showing cows growing out of the arms of people that that had been immunised. So clearly, even in those days, there was a bit of interest in the side effects of vaccination. But that was the very first vaccine, and then really the next ones were a good 120 years later. Really? uh, Why? Why the gap? Well, because we didn't understand the science. I mean, Jenner's observation was, if you like... Uh, well, I think it, it's called chance or empirical, mm. depending on whether you're trying to be scientific or not mm-hmm. about it. But the the next step forward with that really came with the idea of what were called antitoxins, that uh, animals that had been infected with particular diseases, and thinking particularly diphtheria and tetanus, seemed to have something in their blood which protected them against future attacks. Mm. And uh, a very clever German industrialist called Emil von Behring uh, who was really more interested in making carpet dyes than in making vaccines, came up with the observation that you could purify the toxins out of bacteria and render them safe so they didn't cause disease by, by mixing them with formalin, a chemical which sort of destroys them a bit but not completely. And then if he immunized animals with the, this uh, formalized toxin, so it was called a toxoid, then they were protected against the real disease. And he went on and, first of all, made a serum from animals, which he put into humans to try and treat the disease. And that wasn't terribly successful, although it did give some encouraging results. But then he realized that he could just directly immunize people with that. And while that took 30 or 40 years to actually happen, that mm. was the next generation of vaccines. Okay. Actually, those vaccines started the whole science of immunology. It wasn't that we needed the immunology oh. to take the vaccines. It was the other way around. Ah, oh, fascinating. So then we started to unravel what is the immune system. Yeah, the, what we How's it doing what this? these anti, antitoxins mm. were. And they got given the name of antibodies eventually, and that's what we still call the material in your blood which protects you against infection. Okay, so let's just discuss what antibodies do. Well, antibodies are just proteins in your blood, but they're, mm. they're, they come in 
many, many different varieties. From where? Uh, they're made by specialized cells of the of the lymphoid system, so they're called B cells. But they make they make the, uh, each one makes its own antibody. And uh, and where do they hang out the lymphoid tissue? Mostly in the gla- in, in your glands, so right. the lymph glands under your arms and around your groins, and then also you've got a big thing called the spleen, which is full of lymph- lymphocytes ready mm-hmm. to make antibody. We're surrounded by lymphocytes. They're basically right. designed to protect us. Right, and they're the little little cells that produce the antibodies or antitoxins. That's exactly right. right. Each one makes its own, so that every time you encounter a new infection or a new disease, a new set of B cells make a new set of antibodies specific for that particular problem. Terrific. So when you're creating a vaccination, what's the connection between a vaccination and those B cells? Well, the real idea of, of a vaccination is to trick the body into thinking it's already seen the infection so that it makes the antibodies that will protect it against another go at the same infection. So that vaccines consist in general of something that looks pretty much like the, the infectious organism but rendered completely safe by one means or another. And when you put that into the body, the body's, the appropriate B cells recognize this material as foreign and make antibodies against it and continue to make antibodies for the rest of your life. So why doesn't the vaccination make you sick? Well, let's say it was a virus that we're trying to protect against. There are three ways that you can make it so that it looks like the virus, but it doesn't cause the disease. Mm. One is you can make the virus and grow it up and then kill it. Mm -hmm. You treat it with chemicals so that it can't be infectious anymore, but it still looks like the virus, so Mm. the immune system still sees the right pattern and makes the right antibody. Right. So that's one. That sounds pretty simple. Yeah, and that's the way that most vaccines were made initially because it was mm. re- recognised as safe. Mm. The second way of doing it is to take a virus which uh, is very close to the virus that causes the disease, and of course that's what Jenner did. Although he didn't know that what he was doing, he used the cowpox virus, which looks very like the smallpox virus, doesn't cause disease, but looks sufficiently similar to protect the body if the if the immune system sees it. Mm. But we can do that, for example, for measles virus and make a a measles virus which is what they call attenuated in other words it Mm. it looks like the virus and it's infectious but it doesn't cause the disease so that then the body sees this and makes an immune response which fights not only the attenuated vaccine but also the real virus Mm. and that that's the way that uh, so-called live vaccines are made and we we receive a number of those already and they're very effective and also very safe Uh, the the probably the most compelling example of that is the polio virus vaccine which is a live vaccine, you get it as drops under the tongue and it produces an infection in your gut which produces no disease but protects you completely against polio. Yeah, and and even so, even though they're attenuated, so altered, the immune system will produce an antibody that would recognise the actual polio virus and neutralise it. Yes, the, the shell of the virus, the bit that mm-hmm. protects the insides, isn't mm-hmm. altered. Okay. It's the shell that the antibody binds onto. Mm-hmm. The bit inside is altered so it can't do any damage to you, and that's, uh, that's uh, achieved and checked very carefully. But the outside remains the same, and therefore that's the bit that uh, raises the antibodies that protect you. So with the human papillomavirus, I mean, we probably should initially discuss the significance of it for cancer of the cervix, how we became interested in it in particular. Yes, the cancer of the cervix had been thought for quite a while to be a potentially infectious, caused by an infectious agent, and uh, simply because of the way that the the epidemiology worked. I mean, a a clever pathologist in Verona in Italy in 1840 recognised that prostitutes 
got cervical cancer, but nuns never did. Yes, I think that's an important point to bring out, isn't it? It has something to do with sexual relationships. Yeah, it has. It's mm. a virus that's passed around sexually, as we mm. now know. He had no idea about viruses, and he didn't realise what particular agent was responsible. But uh, the idea that an infection might be responsible went on for a long time. Mm. But really, the breakthrough came with uh, German professor Harold Sohausen in the 1980s, because he made the hypothesis and then went on to prove that the virus that might be responsible was one of these viruses that we call papillomaviruses or wart viruses. Now, he had a big advantage in all of this because up until just before he started working in the area, it was thought there was just one human wart virus and it caused warts. And since warts never turned into cancer, people assumed that this virus was a safe virus and didn't cause any problems. And indeed, the virus that causes ordinary warts is a perfectly safe virus and never causes cancers. But what he became aware of was that there wasn't just one virus in this family of viruses, but in fact a whole pile of them. He thought about 20. And he hypothesized that some of those viruses could be responsible for cancers. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Dr Virginia Reid and I'm discussing vaccinations with Professor Ian Fraser. So we've just mentioned that a German uh, scientist was the person who sorted out that it was human papillomavirus that may be causing cervical problems? Yes, that's right, Virginia. He basically had this hypothesis, and he went on and showed, first of all, in samples from cancers, and then also he went on and showed in the lab how the virus could actually cause a cancer. Oh, really? Boy. So that's pretty amazing science, isn't it, in, in, in a rapid space of time. When, when was this gentleman doing this work? It was the late 1970s and the early right. 1980s, so right. recently. So that's 100 years after the recognition, 100, 130 years after the recognition that it could be an infectious agent. Yes, I mean, as you yeah. know, uh, the, the pathologist in Verona working in a time before Medline and mm-hmm. the database is... Uh, <laughs> that's what I was hoping you'd point out, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, right time, right place, always is. Yeah. And so how have you used that information to create the vaccination? Well, I mean, back at the beginning, we were interested in how people whose immune systems were damaged seemed to have terrible trouble getting rid of genital wart viruses. And right. uh, we even went on to show that they, that they had an increased instance of uh, pre-cancer lesions as a result of the fact they couldn't fight the virus so right. that was back in 1985. That was when I got started to get interested in the idea of perhaps getting a vaccine and went and visited Professor Terhausen and talked with him about the science of the virus because I didn't know much about it in those days. And we set out then to make vaccines. First of all, vaccines to treat existing infection because we thought that might be more useful because Mm. it wasn't clear at that time that this was such a common virus. Mm-hmm. And then we subsequently, Dr. Jan Zhu and I went on to develop the technology which led to a vaccine to prevent infection with this particular set of viruses. I mean, there was a big problem with that, mm. and that was that this virus couldn't be grown in the laboratory. Okay. Okay. So that the two methods of making a vaccine that we discussed earlier, neither yes. of those were open to us. Right. Because we couldn't grow up the virus and then kill it to make it safe, and we couldn't grow up an, a, a diluted and attenuated virus mm. which wasn't able to cause disease. You mean you tried and it didn't work? Well, we and many others had tried it. Yes. This virus just didn't want to grow. Yes, yes. So yes. we had to t- adopt a different strategy. Okay. And the strategy that we adopted was to make use of fermentation technology, uh, molecular biology, if you like, to produce the virus shell 
using uh, DNA technology so that rather than trying to grow up virus, we just made the protein that's the outside of the virus. And uh, the, we, we You mean you made it? How, how do you make something like that? Well, it's it's a bit like brewing, really. You right. you uh, you take the you take yeast and you add uh, the gene that uh, expresses the protein that you're interested in, in. This case, the shell of the virus, and you tri- trick the yeast into making not only all its own proteins but also this extra protein. And uh, basically, that's what recombinant DNA technology is all about. It's just tricking bacteria or microorganisms into making new proteins. So you sort of like the cuckoo with the egg. You sort of slip in your your egg into the into the yeast. Yeah, pretty much, and, uh, the, and it hatches it for you. Yeah, it produces the protein. Indeed, it, it does clever. it very generously and makes lots of it. Oh, very clever! I guess that's why you choose yeast. Well, we, we originally did the work in a different cell, in a lot of different cell types, but uh, yeast has been the one that right. has been used to make the vaccine. Right. What happened next? Well, the the the, I, the, the story is probably best told from the beginning. I met this guy Jan Zhu who uh, was my partner in all of this when I was on sabbatical in Cambridge in England in 1989. And he and I got to talking about how we might want to make a virus. He was interested in the virus from the point of view of how viruses work, and I was mm. interested in how the body fights them off. Mm-hmm. But we both wanted to make a virus, this particular virus. And, uh, sort of like the interface between the two, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, we, we, we interfaced very nicely over yes. the coffee in the tea room in Cambridge <laughs> and uh, talked about it quite a lot. Right. And then he decided he would come out to Brisbane and we'd give it a go, so that Fantastic. he came out in 1990, uh, and uh, he and I worked on how to put the virus together. And uh, it, it was a, there was a year of basically nothing working, if you like, because mm. we tried all the tricks that we knew mm-hmm. and none of them seemed to work. Mm. But two major breakthroughs made it a, a little easier for us to get to where we wanted to get to. One of them was a technical one. Uh, that we realized that maybe we were using the wrong cell type to do the work because this was a virus which grew in human cells. Maybe we should be using cells which were pretty much like human cells to try and make the virus okay. particles. Okay. And then the second breakthrough was a, uh, just a, a bit of uh, deduction. that we, we looked at uh, how this particular gene that makes the, cap, the coat of the virus actually works in, re- in the real world and realized that there was something funny about it, that most genes, they're, they're just a sort of computer program, and the computer program for most genes starts at the beginning and goes right the way through to the end. But this particular computer program, the first bit was, if you like, a virus, so to speak. It was something you didn't want there. So we cut out that first bit, and then after that, it worked fine. So that uh, it was just a matter of starting at the right place. And those two tricks together eventually led to us producing the protein and much to our surprise once we produced the protein it did the work for itself it folded itself up and assembled itself into oh. these virus capsids the outside of the virus all on its own all on its own but within this human cell yeah and that was the key piece yeah it was the key oh. piece was to get it to do all of that it wouldn't do that if it wasn't in the human cell yeah we, we oh, tried in a number of other cell types and it just didn't work yeah fantastic <laughs> It's like watching a miracle unfold. You're then able to to culture the the virus itself, the well, we the, the, the shells the, the the shell virus, that that would the stimulate the immune system. And we made some, and we purified them, and we mm. put them into an animal, and showed mm. that it made an immune response, and, and that, it produced an antibody response. Yeah. Yeah. 
And and then it's taken off since then. You've done human trials and now it's released. Well, basically that was all back in 1991 and what mm. happened after that was that we passed it on to a commercial company that could do in big scale what we were doing in small scale. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. obviously we can, it's a bit like doing the difference between an industrial kitchen and doing it in your own, uh, yes. your own barbecue, if you like. It has its own set of problems, yes. Yeah, so doing <laughs> large scale is a big job. And Absolutely. We passed it on to a... CSL and, and they passed it on in due course to Merck and uh, yeah. then a lot of our colleagues went out and did the clinical trials to prove the vaccine worked. Yes, absolutely. And do we have any evidence yet that it's decreasing the incidence of precancerous lesions? I should imagine cancer will take a while. Well, the, the, the clinical trials which have involved 25,000 women worldwide today basically showed that women who received the vaccine were absolutely protected against developing the precancer. Right. Whereas the woman who received placebo got precancer at the expected rate, right. and uh, I, I mean, I must admit, I was quite surprised that it was so effective. I would right. have been quite happy if it had worked sort of eighty and ninety percent. Exactly, it turned out to be a hundred percent. Fascinating. And with human papillomavirus, I mean, there were a lot of myths, etc., um, about how it's acquired and. I think, too, it would be important to discuss how we can best prevent cervical cancer from an immunologist's point of view. Um, so that's, that's a whole fascinating discussion on its own. But um, in terms of the vaccination that has just been released here in Australia and is now available in Australia, there are, I suppose, a lot of recommendations about when and in whom it should be used? Yeah, the, the, well, look, the, the first thing to understand is that the vaccine that's available at the moment protects against uh, two of the strains of the virus which cause, cause about 70% of cervical cancer. Right. So that this is a vaccine whose job, if you like, is to reduce the risk that a woman will have an abnormal pap smear and therefore need surgical treatment. But it won't actually be a substitute for the pap smear program at the moment. Mm. Next generation vaccines coming in five to ten years time might protect against all the types of virus that cause the cancer, but the one at the moment will be 70%. So women really have to carry on having their pap smears. Having said that, the vaccine is best given, obviously, before you catch the infection which causes the cervical cancer, because the vaccine can only prevent you getting the infection. It can't treat you if you've already got it. You're listening to Wellbeing and we're discussing human papilloma vaccination with Professor Ian Frazen. We're going to have to do something about that name, human papilloma virus vaccination. It's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Well, the cervical <laughs> cancer vaccine is easier to see, I guess. Okay, so we are going to, to call it that. But as you intimated previously, uh, there are other causes perhaps of cervical cancer and therefore it's important that people, even if they're vaccinated, continue to have pap smears. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, we, cervical cancer is pretty much 100% caused by human papillomaviruses. The problem is simply that there's not just one or two of them, there's about 10 of them. And it's the only particular strains of the human papillomavirus that are, that are cancer-forming? That's so right. people shouldn't have... I mean, you, you know, you, you get that report often on a, on a pap smear um, evidence of HPV infection. Now, those people shouldn't be overly concerned that they're definitely going to develop no, I mean, th- this is a very, very common infection. Uh, yep. 40% of uh, young adult women will have had the infection by the time they're 25. Yes. And most of them will just get rid of it themselves. Now, I, I was recently at a lecture that was talking about the vaccine and the pathologist cited a, a study that was done on 
unfortunately, cadavers of stillborns born to mothers who had infection. And there was evidence of the human papillomavirus in the cervixes of some of the, of the stillborns. So he cited that as a piece of evidence that we don't really know where this, when, when the infection occurs and we shouldn't therefore um, you know, be tracing sexual, sexual partners, etc. Well, we certainly don't want to chase around and see who got it from whom because the practical reality is that you never know mm. and the infection is very common and most people don't know they've got it and most people then get rid of it and know, never know they've had it. Mm. But they're infectious for quite a while because it tends to persist for two or three years before you clear it up. It's mm. one of the reasons why the virus is so common because it's very easily passed on because there are a lot of people out there who are carrying the virus around. Mm. But the, notwithstanding the fact that it may be occasionally passed from mother to child, we know that the vast majority of infections with this virus mm. are acquired within about five years of starting sexual activity and that uh, the, the, the uh, major reason for getting it is through sexual activity of one sort and another. It's not a disease that should be seen as a sexually transmitted infection because the, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's so common that really it doesn't relate to how many sexual partners you have. It's just a matter of whether you've had sex or not. Yes, yes, okay. But in that case, I guess it was not even, you know, the, the, there wasn't even sex involved. So what we're saying is that there are particular strains that are problematic and that's what the vaccine is targeted against. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we, we go for the strains which most commonly are associated mm. with cervical cancer. Mm. And uh, therefore, does that give us an age group that we should vaccinate? Yeah, well, we really right. should be vaccinating 9 to 12-year-olds ideally because the okay. reality is that uh, the, this is an infection which is most commonly caught through sexual activity. But uh, the, the other reason for doing it at that age is simply that uh, the uh, uh, immune response to the vaccine right. is much better if you get okay. to 9 to 12. Uh, our immune system is designed to uh, uh, respond best when we're young. Right, right. And so does that let us know, therefore, I mean, with those studies that show that remarkable um, efficacy, one would hope that the government would start to take notice of those figures and fund this vaccine, which they're certainly not at the moment. Well, the vaccine's not uh, is being assessed by the uh, pharmaceutical benefits advisory scheme at the moment. Mm. Uh, clearly, they have to make a recommendation to government about what the, how the vaccine should be used. Mm. And uh, as it happens, that ruling should be available very shortly. Well, it'll save them an awful lot of money. Well, that's the argument that's put forward. All, mm. of, the, all of the 20,000 women every year who get treated for cervical yes. pre-cancer at the moment, that will be reduced down to three or 4,000 at considerable cost saving. But clearly that's a, a, as much a political decision as any other because if you've got to spend money to save money and yes. uh, the government would have to spend the money now. So we'll wait and see how they decide about that. Unless, of course, you're one of those women. In oh, which indeed. case it becomes uh, totally not a, a political health, argument. <laughs> from a public health point of yes. view, it makes extremely good sense. It does. As, as vaccination, that's, that's the realm of vaccination, isn't it? It's public health and, and infection in general. It's the thing that's really improved our health the most. Yeah, I mean, the, the va vaccinations are probably the single biggest impact on public health after clean water worldwide. Yeah, yeah exactly. So what is, do you, do you mind giving us the recommendations for who should be vaccinated? Nine to 12-year-olds, and then people are going to say, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I've had HPV on my smear. Does that mean I should be vaccinated? Well, rather the other way around. But, I mean, the, the best way to look at it is that uh, 
if we're introducing it as a public health measure, then targeting 9 to 12-year-olds is ideal. Right. Uh, for those women who are not currently vaccinated, who are still potentially at risk through perhaps uh, potential for a new sexual partner in the future, then that the vaccine's available up to the age of 26. Mm-hmm. That's when it's licensed between 9 and 26. And indeed, if you were over 26 and you thought it was a vaccine that uh, you should have, then between you and your doctor, you might decide that the vaccine could be given that way, although that would not ever be recommended officially because uh, it's not the way the vaccine's licensed. Really, Mm -hmm. then it becomes an individual matter for individual patients to decide. Right, right. So 9 to 12 may get funding, 12 to 26 may have to fund self. Yeah, possibly. Okay. And is it hoped that the pool, therefore, such as, you know, we don't see much measles, we don't, but, but partly because our children are vaccinated, but is it hoped, for example, like smallpox, that the only HPV left will be in a test tube somewhere? Yeah. The pool will be decreased. Ideally, that would be what would happen, but mm. uh, the... It's, uh, I have to say that that's uh, a fair distance in the future for the very practical reason that uh, for smallpox, if somebody's ill with the disease, it's very obvious there are no hidden cases of smallpox. But for papillomavirus, the vast majority of people who have got it don't know they've got it at the time. And therefore, while we'll certainly reduce the burden of papillomavirus in the community quite a lot through vaccination, getting rid of every last case, yes. and therefore getting rid of the Much virus more problematic than measles. More difficult. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or like yeah. polio, which is proving equally hard to get rid of the very last case. Yes, yes, it's fascinating, isn't it? There are other things that we can do to prevent cervical cancer, aren't there? Well, obviously taking part... What, what decreases the risk? Yeah. Yeah, the, the risk factors beyond the virus are right. actually fairly minimal in their effect. I mean, it's true that uh, uh, smoking and the use of the oral contraceptive pill in early age of first intercourse all contribute a small amount of extra risk of getting the cancer. Right. But they're all trivial in comparison with the very significant risk if you get the virus. Oh, yes. And uh, since we, a very not large number of us are going to get the virus, and really the most important thing for preventing cervical cancer is the pap smear program. We have oh. 300 deaths from cervical cancer in Australia every year, and yes. the vast majority of those occur in women who haven't had a smear within the last 10 years. Right. Okay, so detection of early changes and uh, treatment of those is still the most significant preventive factor. Yeah, I think that's the critical thing for women to understand is that the, the be- their best protection against cervical cancer now and in the future is vaccination if they're at the right age and also continuing to take part in the pap smear program as recommended. Yes, I think yeah. I, what I'm hoping to get in two minutes flat is a lecture that you gave recently in Newcastle on immune, I, I believe, on your immune system and how best to, to, to keep it really healthy. Yes, well, obviously people like to think that their immune system will be kept in good order. And uh, for that, the most sensible thing to do are all the obvious and sensible things. Healthy diet, good lifestyle, not getting overweight, not too much alcohol and no tobacco. And that will give you the best chance of having a good and healthy immune system. Uh, uh, Unless you're a sheep on the Canterbury Plains, the trace, trace element deficiency is not really a problem with your immune system, although it's commonly promoted that copper and zinc will help your immune system. Mm. That's only true if you're already short of those metals, and in Australia that would be almost unheard of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so you really think our soil's pretty good? Diet. Beg your pardon? Really, it comes down to a sensible diet and looking mm. after yourself. Where do you get minerals from? 
Oh, they're in all the food that we eat. Fortunately, I mean, uh, obviously, if you if you're one of these people who chooses to go on a very specific and particularly mm. restrictive diet, then you might be short of vitamins and minerals through that. Mm. But if you eat a, a, a broad-based diet across all the food groups, you'll not be short of vitamins and minerals. It's been a fascinating discussion, and I thank you very much for your time because I understand that it would be very, very short. <laughs> You've done an amazing amount in your lifetime. And uh, we really appreciate your assistance in, in helping us to live a healthy life. Well, thank you very much for that. I have been speaking with Professor Fraser about vaccinations, the human papillomavirus vaccination, and how to keep your immune system healthy in general. I'm Dr Virginia Reid, and all of us here at Wellbeing wish you well.